1972, a 26-year-old Native American woman visited her doctor in Los Angeles asking for a womb transplant. Six years earlier, a different doctor, whom she was seeing through the Indian Health Service, performed a hysterectomy on her because she was struggling with alcoholism. The doctor told her it was reversible, so she agreed. She thought it wasn't a good time to be a mother yet. Now she and her husband were ready to start a family. But the Los Angeles doctor, Connie Urie, a Choctaw Cherokee, had to tell her that there was no such thing as a womb transplant. The woman left in tears, and Dr. Urie began her investigation into the Indian Health Service's campaign of sterilization abuse against Native American women. Uh, some people say it was, you know, part of eugenics. Uh, we say it was genocide. I was outraged that this doctor decided for me that I was okay with not having the ability to have any future children. They were targeted. Women were used in the trial because they were poor women. All the simple stuff has been done a long time ago. There are no simple answers now. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless, the backstory. Four weeks, four stories of unethical medical research, coercion, and injustices in healthcare that have led us to where we are today. Because pro-choice is a meaningless phrase when we assume that all choices are created equal. So far in the series, we've talked about the early birth control pill trial and the Dalkin Shield IUD and the injustices that stemmed from that reproductive technology. Of course, none of these injustices happened in a vacuum, and the widespread sterilization abuse that the U.S. allowed and encouraged through eugenics policies and practices played a role in both of those stories. In this episode, sterilization abuse is front and center. So I brought back Cynthia Greenlee, a historian and senior editor at Rewire, to talk to us a little bit about the history of sterilization abuse in the United States. So I'm Dr. Cynthia Greenlee. I am the senior editor at Rewire, but I'm also a historian, and I specialize in the history of the United States and gender in the late 19th century and early 20th. We started hearing about the ideas of sterilization really in the mid-19th century, but it was kind of just an idea that hadn't been put into practice, largely because it wasn't really possible medically. But by the turn of the 20th century, we start seeing states enacting laws that say involuntary sterilization could be allowed, especially for people who were considered Um, in quotation marks, defective or um, undesirable in some ways. And so what did that really mean? By the time we got to the point where sterilization of women was relatively easy to do, um, sterilization would happen in a number of different ways. So it could be that women went in for a cesarean section and they delivered and they were given a tubal ligation, what we call tying their tubes. It could be that they went in for procedures that were not reproductive health related. So they might go in for an appendectomy and then also get a tubal ligation without their consent. In fact, that happened so much in places like Mississippi, particularly to African-American women, that the nickname for sterilization or getting your tube tied was a Mississippi appendectomy. But in other cases, we know that women were presented consent forms for sterilization when they were giving birth, like sometimes in the middle of labor. And we know that's not a great time to be presenting people documents to make decisions about, and sometimes immediately after. 
And finally, in some cases, women were making decisions about sterilization, but they weren't always told that it was permanent. So they might not have the knowledge that this was not just something that would stop pregnancy in the short term, but that it would be something that would mean they could never have children again. So about the moment in the mid-1970s, we start seeing lots of reports about involuntary or forced sterilization that are coming from multiple communities, and some are a little earlier than that. So in terms of Native American communities, sterilization was one part of the ways in which the U.S. government and particularly the Indian Health Service took control out of Native people's hands and out of their bodies. So when you think about this in conjunction with programs to remove Native of children out of their homes, parental homes, and their communities and place them in boarding schools, as well as efforts to dispossess Native people of their lands and culture in other ways. This is a really dangerous, potent way to make sure that a community can't exercise its own self-determination. And What we do know about Native American women and sterilization was also the product in some ways of radical Native activism. So when American Indian Movement activists took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, they seized documents. And that was really, really important because some of those documents pertained information about sterilization abuse. And that allowed Native women to then start really analyzing the data and making the argument that there had been a massive government Indian Health Service program to sterilize Native women. My name is Sharon Asatoya. I'm a Namunak, member of the Comanche Nation of Oklahoma, and I'm also the founder and executive director of the Native American Community Board, which has the Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center. And that's probably what we're best known for. The Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center got started about 30 years ago. We wanted to start a community-based organization that would address the issues of fetal alcohol syndrome. We incorporated a a community board, and from there we were able to purchase a small small building that we could operate out of, and we started working with uh, FAS. That grew into uh, women turning to us for other services, I, I, I remember first hearing about um, the sterilization. Um, I was very much involved back in the 70s in the American Indian Movement. And a lot of this was being discussed uh, in women's circles. And women were talking to each other, and women were, ta- were bringing us information about how they had been sterilized without giving consent, without even knowing it uh, until they tried to have uh, a a child or being told after the fact. And the American Indian Movement was um, a real strong movement and still is, but back in the 70s. 
and uh, it was throughout the the, the uh, different reservations and the urban areas here in this country. And so uh, it doesn't take long for uh, the word to get around through the Moccasin Telegraph. And uh, people in the cities were questioning it, and people in the rural areas were questioning it, and people were talking. And, and um, you know, so we knew something was wrong. The Indian Health Service is a division of the Department of Health and Human Services, and they provide government-subsidized health care to Native Americans. The women who were coming forward saying they were sterilized either without their consent or without full understanding of the procedure were patients of the Indian Health Service. Sharon and other advocates knew something was going on, and they were already aware of the eugenics ideas that have been inspiring physicians, researchers, and politicians to engage in contraceptive coercion and sterilization abuse towards women of color. Our communities across the, the uh, spectrum uh, have had um, huge uh, challenges and campaigns uh, launched against us from contact to current day and everything in between. We um, have been, um, of course, uh, declared uh, war against us and tried to annihilate us through that. Uh, But as time uh, um, progressed and and we were put onto reservations, there were different methods, different uh, technology. And one of the things that uh, came about uh, during the 60s and 70s was the coercion or for, and forced sterilization of Native women. It occurred when um, women were, were at her most vulnerable. It occurred uh, without women knowing. In fact, the majority of the time, it was done without a woman's consent. She would go in for delivery, and a C-section was done, and during that time, a tubal ligation was done. There were also other methods that occurred. Um, If you would go in for, uh, say, an appendectomy, um, you would uh, not only come out without your appendix, but um, you may have had a total hysterectomy or uh, your tubes tied. So this was uh, starting to occur more and more. And then there was another way in which they uh, would coerce women and, uh, and tell them that if they had any more children, they, uh, you know, it could be uh, detrimental to their health. Um, they were threatened with loss of uh, uh, welfare benefits and so on. And so the um, Indian Health Service was very clever about how uh, it was done. Um, They were very involved, knowledgeable about what they were doing, and it was government policy to reduce our population. Uh, Some people say it was, you know, part of eugenics. Uh, We say it was genocide. However, they didn't have the documentation to prove that the sterilization abuse was purposeful and widespread. But Connie Uri, the Los Angeles doctor I talked about at the top of the show, had been collecting data to prove just how extensive and deliberate this campaign was. 
She found that during the 1970s, the Indian Health Service sterilized at least 20% of Native American women ages 15 to 44. And she and other experts have suggested that that number is likely much higher because the Indian Health Service often sent patients to regional hospitals for surgeries, and those procedures wouldn't have been on the Indian Health Service's books. The sterilization abuse was planned. U.S. government agencies, including the Indian Health Service, targeted Native American women for sterilization because they had a higher birth rate than the affluent, well-educated white women who they wanted to reproduce. Census data from 1970 found that the average birth rate among Native Americans was close to four children, compared to the national average of about 2.5. And by 1980, after the sterilization campaign, the average birth rate among Native Americans dropped to under two. It had all been confirmed. There was a doctor, Connie Urey, and she had um, come across some documents and some files. She's a native uh, physician, and it was actually documented that this is what they were doing. This was the greater plan. And so she uh, brought those papers up to uh, up to. Uh, the public and a lot of the Native leadership. And between that and the numbers coming out of the uh, Government Accounting Office, um, there there were these uh, Senate committee hearings. This information was taken to Senator James Aberesk. Senator James Aberesk of South Dakota was the chairman of the Senate Interior Subcommittee on Indian Affairs, and he requested that the Government Accounting Office conduct a full investigation. They looked into four Indian Health Service program areas, Aberdeen, Albuquerque, Oklahoma City, and Phoenix. And they found that between 1973 and 1976, their doctors sterilized more than 3,400 Native American women. And during those three years, there were only about 100,000 American Indian women of childbearing age. Some of the women sterilized were younger than 21, which was the legal age for voluntary sterilization. The Government Accounting Office also found that the doctors used at least three different consent forms, and none of them adequately informed women that they were being permanently sterilized. And in subsequent interviews, doctors at the Indian Health Service were very open about their agenda. According to a 1973 study by the Health Research Group, the majority of the doctors performing coercive sterilizations were white men who believed they were doing a service to society by limiting the number of children born to poor women of color. It went on across the board, and um, it it was really targeted towards um, the Arizona, New Mexico area, um, which was the the Indian Health Services divided up into area offices. So the Phoenix and Albuquerque area office, the uh, Oklahoma area, uh, and and Aberdeen. Those. Uh, areas were really targeted. That's pretty much where your largest populations of Indian nations are. So it was very devastating, not only from a cultural perspective, um, looking at a, a race of people, but at a community level, at a family level, at a personal level. For a woman who wants to have children, children are very important in our community. They're very important to our culture. And um, to, to be prevented against your will 
to have children, to be sterilized without your knowledge, without your consent, trusting a doctor to put you under, to remove your uh, appendix and instead, you know, your tubes are tied and you not only lose your appendix, but you, uh, your tubes are tied and you could end up with a total hysterectomy. And these were things that were going on. In 1976, in response to these reports, Congress passed the Indian Health Care Improvement Act, which allowed tribes to manage or control the Indian Health Services programs. But immense irreparable damage had already been done to Native American women and their marriages, families, and communities. And there was no formal apology from the coercive doctors who performed these sterilizations. The physicians doing them, they, they uh, agreed with the policy and, uh, and, and, and did this. Um, they saw it as, you know, doing their job. Uh, they didn't see it as uh, committing genocide. And uh, in reality, that's exactly what, what they were doing. Choiceless The Backstory is produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Fletty, our director of multimedia and executive producer. Cynthia Greenlee is a senior editor at Rewire, and she's a contributor and story consultant on this series. Laura Huss provided research for this series. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for Choiceless is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perrone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team for getting the word out about Choiceless. Tune in next week for the final episode of this series. And if you're enjoying Choiceless The Backstory, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really does make a difference, and it gets more people to hear the show. Thanks for listening. 